the word of our Lord from the Gospel of John. After this, the death of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds worth. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the the day of preparation for the Jews for the tomb was nearby. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there. Yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a certain place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scriptures, that he should rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where, they, where they've laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbani, which is to say teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But I go, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Let's pray. Almighty God, through your only begotten Son, Jesus, you overcame death and opened to us the gate of everlasting life. Grant that we who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection may be raised from the death of sin by your life-giving Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
the story of Jesus' resurrection is a story that is filled with confusion. In the account that we just read in John's Gospel, you have the disciples after Jesus' arrest being scattered and scared, confused. What's going on? How could this be? We thought this was the Messiah. We, we put all of, our, all of our hopes into Him that this was God's man, that this was the one that Yahweh had sent to redeem the world and He's being taken away from us. You'll remember that in the weeks leading up to that holy week, Jesus had constantly been telling His disciples, trying to prepare them for what was happening. We are going to Jerusalem, and when we get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be betrayed, and He'll be taken, and He'll be abused, and He will die, and He will rise again on the third day. But that was all just white noise to them. Because it didn't make any sense to them. It didn't seem to fit into the picture of what they envisioned for their Messiah. Oh Lord, that's just silly talk. That's not going to happen. You'll remember Peter said, God forbid that that should ever happen. At the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus draws His disciples close to Himself and He asks them to pray with Him and spend some time in prayer. And they still don't get what's going on. They have just celebrated the Passover with Jesus. He had just told them that the bread was His body and it was broken for them. He had just told them that this cup was His blood of the new covenant and was being shed for them. He told them, I'm going away. And where I go, you can't come. Where are you going, Lord? You just tell us and we'll come along. No, no, no. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so when they gather in the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples still aren't putting together all of the pieces. They still don't get what's happening because the Messiah's death does not fit into their game plan. And so when he's arrested in the garden, Peter tries to stand up and defend him and he cuts off the ear of one of the guards. And you'll remember that Jesus said, no, no, Peter. That's not the way of the kingdom. And he heals the guard. And he's bound and taken to the authorities. And so the disciples scatter. They're filled with fear. They're filled with confusion. They're filled with disappointment. This was not supposed to turn out like this. He was supposed to be the one. Yeah, there had been others who claimed to be the one, but they all died and now He's died too. And so early, early, early on Sunday morning, when it's still dark, John tells us, Mary Magdalene moseys over to the tomb of Jesus. 
And when she gets there, her eyes see something that does not make any sense. The stone is rolled away and she runs back to the disciples. Something is wrong. His grave has been tampered with. And so Peter and perhaps John, perhaps John is referring to himself here as the disciple whom Jesus loved. They take off running. And it's funny that John is sure to say, I got there first. They take off running to the tomb. And when they get there, the disciple whom Jesus loved stops before the tomb and then Peter goes on into the tomb. And then John follows him in and explains what they see. The, 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 the linens and the, the facial garment separated from them and he's not there. And so they're marveling what has happened. They head on back home and Mary sticks around and is approached by a couple of angels and is asked, what are you doing here? Why are you so upset? When Jesus approaches her, she can't even recognize Him. I imagine her eyes are filled with tears. Her brain is spinning. Nothing is making any sense. Sir, if you've taken him away, just tell me where you've put him and and it won't be any trouble. And I'll take him from there. But then he calls her name. And immediately, it makes sense. It doesn't all make sense, but it makes sense. She suddenly realizes this man before me is indeed... Jesus of Nazareth. This is the man that I've spent these last few years following. This is the man who I've heard teach me day after day. This is the man that I've seen feed the multitudes. This is the man that I've seen walk on water. This is the man that I've seen do all of these things. Raise up Lazarus from the dead. This is him. She heads back to the disciples at Jesus' word and tells them he's risen from the dead and he's going to come pay you a visit. I imagine before that visit, the disciples are all scratching their heads wondering, really? That sort of thing doesn't just happen. There's an awful lot of confusion that rests around the story of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And this morning, I want to look at what the resurrection declares to us. What indeed happened? Quite plainly, the impossible happened. The miraculous. Something that doesn't just happen, 
on a daily basis. Something that just doesn't happen in the natural order of things. A man who was dead came back to life three days after his death. In his poem, Seven Stanzas at Easter, John Updike says, Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was his flesh. Ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted on the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not paper mache, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we'll have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, Vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun in a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience or our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. The impossible happened at Easter. This is not just some cute story to help us live a better life. This is not just some fable that teaches us some life lessons about how we can transcend this material world. This is about the material world being put back together. This is about a man who was stone cold dead coming back to life three days later. The miraculous, the impossible. C.S. Lewis said, this is the myth become fact. You may not like that word myth, but he's talking about this is the story that all of the pagans have told us about, of the dying God who somehow comes back to life. But this is not just some story. This is a fact of history. It really happened. And the gospel writers won't let us off the hook of that. Yes, it blows our mind. Yes, it doesn't make sense. Yes, it seems crazy, but it happened. John calls this the greatest of all of the signs. In his gospel, he doesn't just talk about the miracles. He talks about signs. Realities that point beyond themselves to eternal truths about who Christ is. And he tells us that the fulfillment of these signs in, in uh, 30, verse 31 of chapter 20, he says that the fulfillment of these signs are, are that you would believe 
that Jesus is the Christ. That you would have life in His name. See, there are two facts of history that everyone must ultimately address. Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, was stone cold dead. And the second fact is that then three days later, he was alive again. Physically, literally, bodily alive. A woman once wrote J. Vernon McGee. She said, our preacher said that on Easter, Jesus was swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think? J. Vernon McGee replied, Dear sister, beat your preacher with a leather whip, 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross, hang him out in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for three days, then see what happens. What happened? The impossible happened. But with God, all things are possible. But something else happened. Jesus was vindicated. His claims to be Israel's Messiah, His claim to be the Savior of the world, His claim as Lord of the universe was vindicated. John tells us that those signs are given so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God, and that we would have life in His name. And all of the signs, changing the water into wine, feeding the 5,000, walking on the water, all of the signs... We're building toward this one greatest of all signs. That Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is indeed the world's Redeemer. He is indeed Lord of all. He is the one who has power within Himself to defeat death. To destroy the enemies of mankind. What happened? Death was defeated. Death was not simply denied. It was destroyed. It was not ignored as though it doesn't really matter. It was killed. The resurrection is not about death not having an effect on us. It's not about denying whether death really changes things. It's not about ignoring the pain of death. It is about defiantly shaking one's fist in the face of death and declaring that Jesus has conquered death, that death has been killed, it has been destroyed. And so as Christians, our hope is not in just ignoring death. Our hope is not in denying its pain. Our hope is in the fact that it has already been defeated and one day we will be bodily reunited despite death.
the early church father, Irenaeus, said that Jesus undid the fall in his birth and life, and he undid death in his death and resurrection. As a family, we spend some time, we try every, every evening uh, after dinner to spend some time reading through the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, and Lindsay's got a couple of other uh, books that we read with the kids, but... Um, in the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, which is an incredible, incredible book, incredible Bible uh, way of approaching the Bible with children. She said that the good news is that Jesus makes bad things untrue. But we live lives that are surrounded by death. We see pain and loss and sorrow all around us. We've said goodbye to far too many people. Family. Friends. Just this year, countless celebrities. And we can't just ignore that and act as though, oh, their lives don't matter anymore. Well, no, they don't matter anymore. But it does highlight the fact that we are surrounded by death. We hear it on the news daily. It seems like every few months we're given news about a friend or a family member who's facing death. The resurrection of Jesus declares to us not that Jesus acts as though death and loss, pain and suffering are untrue. It declares to us that because Jesus acts, they actually become untrue because they are defeated. Pain and loss, death, destruction. He actually makes them untrue by triumphing over them with His resurrection. What happened? Sin and hell were conquered. Early this morning, I posted a passage of Scripture on Facebook and said, Hell has been harrowed and Jesus is risen. That old archaic word, harrow, or the harrowing of hell, it is about the plundering, the despoiling of hell. Sin and hell are conquered by our Lord's glorious cross and empty tomb. The enemies of our lives, Satan and all of his demons, they are destroyed. The, the empty tomb declares to us the destruction of those enemies. Christ has taken all of those enemies and He has defeated them. He has conquered them. They have no more of a claim on us. Isabel Pickzek, she's an artist and a particle physicist. She said, everybody thinks that the tomb signifies death. Not at all, the exact opposite. The shroud and the tomb signifies an unbelievable beginning. We have nothing less in the tomb of Christ than the beginning of a new universe. 
opened up to the believer is a new life in Jesus. A new life, a new strength, a new reason to sing, a new cause for joy and hope, newness. Paul said, if any man is in Christ, boom, new creation. Right there. And the empty tomb declares to us that because Jesus has done the impossible, because He has been vindicated and is Lord, because He has defeated death and He has conquered sin and hell, He opens up His arms to us and invites us to come and to follow where He leads. As the early Latin tells us, He is our Christus Victor. He is the conqueror. He is the winner. He is the victor. And He gives us reason to celebrate. We can learn quite a bit from the response of Peter and perhaps John, that disciple whom Jesus loved, by their their different actions when they hear he's no longer in the tomb. In celebration, we are invited to run to where Jesus is or to run where he has been. The text tells us that they stooped that they entered, that they saw, and that they believed. In our celebration as God's people, not just this morning, but certainly this morning, but even tomorrow. You know tomorrow is called Easter Monday, right? I'm telling you, they get you all the time. These holidays, they're not just days. They go on for seasons. Tomorrow's Easter Monday, and we got all the way through Easter Saturday, and then we got the second Sunday of Easter and the third Sunday of Easter, and keep going. Because Easter changes everything, it takes the game plan and just throws it out. And so we have calls to really celebrate today and tomorrow and forever. Because Christ is indeed risen. He has triumphed. He has done the impossible. He has done for the disciples what was the unthinkable. No one just crawls back out of the tomb after he's been dead for three days. We have reason to celebrate. And that celebration ought to be evident in our countenance. It ought to be evident in the way we interact with one another. It ought to be evident in the way we live our lives, in the way we prioritize our lives. It ought to be evident in every aspect of our lives that we have reason to celebrate. The gospel does not intend to transform us into a bunch of unhappy 
grumbling people who, who think that this life is miserable. The gospel offers the possibility of transforming us into the most joyous of all people. The most hopeful of all people. Now, if I were to ask, if I were to come into the room and say, guess what, guys? I want a new car. I would hope your response to me wouldn't be, oh, good for you. Todd just landed a new job. Rhonda, guess what? I got the job. Whoop-de-doo. Oh, good. That's, unfortunately, how we often go through responsive readings. I'm going to invite you to read with me the responsive reading. That's the, uh, the insert that David piqued your interest in mentioning earlier. The majority of the reading I will be, I'll be doing. But when it gets to the bold parts, I want you to respond to me as though Jesus has really been raised from the dead. As though this is indeed good news. And not just that it's good news, but it's good news that we actually believe. And so please, take your insert and get ready and let's celebrate together. If anyone is devout and a lover of God, let him enjoy this beautiful and radiant festival. If anyone is a grateful servant, let him rejoice and enter into the joy of his Lord. If anyone has wearied himself in fasting, let him now receive recompense. If anyone has labored from the first hour, let him today receive the just reward. If anyone has come at the third hour with thanksgiving, let him feast. If anyone has arrived at the sixth hour, let him have no misgivings, for he shall suffer no loss. If anyone has delayed until the ninth hour, let him draw near without hesitation. If anyone has arrived even at the eleventh hour, let him not fear on account of tardiness. For the master is gracious and receives the last even as the first. He gives rest to him that comes at the eleventh hour just as to him who has labored from the first. He has mercy upon the last and cares for the first. To the one he gives to the other he is gracious. He both honors the work and praises the intention. Enter all of you, therefore, into the joy of our Lord. And whether first or last, receive your reward. O rich and poor, one with another, dance for joy. You ascetics and you negligent, celebrate the day. You that have fasted and you that have disregarded the fast, rejoice today. The table is rich laden, feast royally, all of you. The calf is fatted. Let no one go forth hungry. Let all partake of the feast of faith. Let all receive the riches of goodness. Let no one lament their poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one mourn their transgressions, for pardon has dawned from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the Savior's death has set us free. He that was taken by death 
has annihilated it. He descended into Hades and took Hades captive. He embittered it when it tasted his flesh. And anticipating this, Isaiah exclaimed, Hades was embittered when it encountered thee in the lower regions. It was embittered, for it was abolished. It was embittered, for it was mocked. It was embittered, for it was purged. It was embittered, for it was despoiled. It was embittered, for it was bound in chains. It took a body and came upon God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw, but crumbled before what it had not seen. O death, where is thy sting? O Hades, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you are overthrown. Christ is risen, and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life reigns. Christ is risen, and not one dead remains in a tomb. For Christ, being raised from the dead, has become the firstfruits of them that have slept. To Him be glory and might unto the ages of ages. Amen. Let's pray.